Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me today are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, a slick Liverpool thrash Bournemouth to jump ahead of Man City as the title race hots up. Can Klopp's men stay there for the long haul and do they have the strength and depth to fight on multiple fronts? Santa has delivered a good news week for Jose Mourinho, with the news that Lukaku has dumped his agent Mino Raiola, and that Ed Woodward seems amenable to signing a centre-back in January. We assess who might be atop the United shopping list. And we take a look at the fallout from the apparent racial abuse of Raheem Sterling at Stamford Bridge, and ask what football and the media can do to help stamp out this apparently encroaching evil. Okay, well, it's been a tumultuous week in the English Premier League and we've seen uh, Man City side go to Stamford Bridge and lose while Liverpool won their game and go top of the league. Duncan, do we have a serious title race developing here? I think we've had a title race um, all season, to be honest. As long as as long as long two teams are, are putting results in on the table in the manner that Liverpool and Manchester City have been, then, then clearly it's a title race and clearly Liverpool's early season success has, has put pressure on City to, um, up until this weekend, outperform the way they, they, they started last season. Um, I thought the game on, on Saturday was, uh, was fascinating in that um, Guardiola made a, a big, big um, gamble, I think, tactical gamble, putting his best player of the season, Raheem Sterling, uh, moving him from the wing and uh, putting him in at, at the number nine position, which he, he really didn't, he failed to perform there. Um, he's been exceptional all year and, uh, and, it, and it didn't fit him. And it's going to be interesting to see whether that's a position he can turn into success as, as his career develops because he's on such a, an upward trajectory. I thought it was interesting because Sari um, dumped the way he's been playing this season um, was far less aggressive. Decided to 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 play defensively against City, and you, you saw David Luiz speaking after the game and repeatedly saying the words humility. Uh, we had to play with humility, which was basically saying we've got to we've got to change um, our attitude because we accept that they've got better players than us. And so one one uh, Chelsea fan interestingly uh, uh, talk about uh, referencing Sari Ball and, and talking about Sari Ball turning into Suffer Ball. Um, which I thought was quite a good good way to describe it, but it worked. Um, and again, that shows a way of playing against Manchester City. Yes, um, uh, Chelsea were fortunate that City didn't take early chances, um, but once they got their goal, um, it was a different game. And, and it showed that if you play um, more cautiously against Manchester City with high-quality players, you can get results against them. Liverpool... I have to say, I think the points total they have so far this season is deceptive. Um, all credit to them for being where they are, but if you look through their games, they really should have lost against Chelsea. They should have lost to Manchester City with the, the penalty that Mares put in the stratosphere. Um, there are other games through the season where they could have dropped points. Uh, recently, you look at the Watford match where Watford should have had a penalty and Liverpool go up the other end and score. And obviously the the Jordan Pickford incident that had uh, had uh, Ian put, putting Pickford forward for our uh, our inaugural Ballon de Merde award last week. Um, I think what's going to be really testing for Liverpool and where we'll see how serious this title race is from now on in is the next five Premier League games, because um, in one of the hardest months of the season where the, the, the fixtures come. 
really fast um, just after they play uh, in the Champions League to try and retain their Champions League place. They've got to play Manchester United, Wolverhampton, who are a, a team capable of getting results against everyone. Newcastle, probably the easiest of the fixtures, but um, Rafa Benitez is, is never a pushover. And, and I doubt you'll see um, Benitez set up in his team in a way that, that suits Jurgen Klopp, Arsenal and Manchester City. And then as a kicker, they've got to go to uh, Brighton um, at away game early in January after that lot. Now, if Liverpool can get through that section, still top of the league, then they've got a real momentum behind them. But I, I think that would be a big, big ask to, um, to get positive results through all of those games and expect that Manchester City are going to drop points. Because I think if you step back and look at the quality of the, of the, the, the teams, um, the quality of the players, Manchester City are clearly better. So in a, normal circumstances where City aren't hit by a, a serious injury to um, too many key players, I would say City should be champions this season. So my experience in football is, um, and especially in terms of teams who win the championship, um, you can rely very much on statistics and fixture lists and probable outcomes of games, etc., etc. But, as I said, my experience, that a lot of it comes down to, um, and forgive the very, very kind of uh, nascent uh, uh, sense of this, but it's how it, how it smells. That sounds odd, but you can smell a team that's going to win. You can smell a team that's on a roll. You can smell a team that, that has the bit between its teeth and, and wants and can achieve greatness and with Liverpool I don't quite get that just yet but what I do get from them is that the momentum which has carried them this far to the top of the Premier League for the first time since Brendan Rodgers was in charge to um, a series of games unbeaten in the Premier League to a point where they believe in themselves as actual contenders rather than potential challengers is, is there it's very, very pungent, uh, to continue the metaphor. And um, what will be very, very important, and I think Duncan's absolutely correct, the fixture list upcoming, if they can get through that, then what will be right now, um, it, it was a pipe dream. I think it's becoming believable. But if they come through the fixture list in the next four to five weeks, and still are either top or a point for point with Manchester City, then it will be a believable and practical um, achievement and development from, for them as a team. So it takes a lot. Uh, I'm a great believer that um, you can have an, an amazing array of talent in your squad uh, and that you know, 95% of the time you will achieve results. But the 5% is the 5% which gets you over the line and wins you the trophy. And, and by that, I mean the big trophy, either the Premier League or the Champions League, whatever it is you want to um, focus on. At this point in time, I don't think that Liverpool dressing room is quite there yet. What do you I think they need, Ian? What do you think they need to add? Well, that's the thing, that's the thing as well, Johnny. I mean, Joe Gomez's injury is a massive, um, massive uh difficulty for them in terms of how they uh, not just replace him but how how they counter his absence because you've got a guy who um, came into the team as a first team regular two seasons ago and has established himself as one of the best centre backs especially playing the three if not the two um, in the league and if they buy someone in January to replace Gomez um in the team, then he has to be someone who can effectively imitate, if not um, Im improve all of those aspects that Gomez brings to the side. And for me, that's going to be very, very difficult because Gomez has been at Liverpool for a long time. He knows Klopp's system. He knows um, the philosophy of football they want to play. So it's going to be a big call, I think, for, for Klopp in terms of what he does in January to do that. I think otherwise, um, and on the upside for Liverpool, you've seen Fabinho and Keita come into the team in the last month 
uh, through substitute appearances and a couple of starts and improve the team and actually look like they're becoming part of that Liverpool setup. So throughout the team, there is improvement and there's definitely improvement to come as well. Uh, but it's it's from the sort of you know middle of the park upwards, not the defence. And the Gomez situation is going to be key, I think, now uh, to how Liverpool can solidify, progress and um, continue to improve their, their Premier League form. I think, I think we've seen um, in recent times with Liverpool that Benway Sports Group have had no hesitation about putting serious money on the table um, to solve what problem areas or improve upon what they've got in, in, in areas of the team. And, you know, they've gone for top targets at high prices like Virgil van Dijk, Naby Keita. You know, they're, they're, they're working at the end of the transfer market where you can identify a player who fits your system and they have the money unless one of the other really big clubs comes in against them to make those deals happen. I mean, I, in fact, you can say even when one of the big clubs come in against because Virgil van Dijk was of uh, serious interest to Manchester City um, last January and, uh, and they basically stepped away because of the, the offer that was on the table in terms of salary uh, and transfer fee um, from Liverpool for Van Dijk. So I, it would not surprise me if FSG did the same in January because they're, they're prepared to go there um, and they have a lot of faith in Jurgen Klopp and they have a lot of faith in their recruitment department because they've had a series of, of successes and made big profits on a couple of players, um, Luis Suarez and Philip Coutinho in particular, which uh, which gives them you know the, the financial argument that it's worthwhile spending heavily on players because because these guys they get value from. Um, I'd also say there's there's probably a couple of factors in Liverpool's favour here which I declined to mention earlier, and, and that is with Pep Guardiola in the past he wins the title almost every year he's been a manager. But generally, he wins the title by sprinting away at the start of the season, establishing a big league um, and, and essentially being untouchable um, quite early into the season. And the longer Liverpool can stay within touching distance of them, the more pressure it will put on a Guardiola team to keep their level up through an entire season, which is hard um, given the way he plays. He runs his players um, more than just about any team, certainly any team of that level. Um, and he, he's very mentally demanding on them in terms of tactical shape within the game and the, the preparation approaches to matches. I mean, he recently um, uh, kicked Benjamin Mendy out of the squad for a week for going to watch, uh, going to watch a boxing match um, at the day before training. And that's, you know, that's typical of the, the sort of hardline approach he'll take to the players and the expectations he has from them. So... It's interesting to see what happens if, if Man City are pushed deep into the season. It's also the case that Guardiola is expected to do very well in the Champions League. Basically, Abu Dhabi want him to win the Champions League. So, um, although Guardiola said throughout that his priority this season is um, to re retain the title rather than to focus on Champions League success, he's well aware of that expectation from the ownership that he does well in the Champions League. And in principle, whether Klopp would do this, I don't know, but it's a fascinating um, kind of thought experiment. Klopp could say, I focus purely on the league um, and allow the, the Champions League or Europa League to go the way it, way it goes, um, knowing it would be better for his team to have just the league to focus on. Whether he can afford to do that because of the pressure on him to win, a, win silverware is another matter. But there's one other factor I think is in his favour is that he's, he's shifted their tactical setup this season and they don't press as much um, and as intensely as they did in previous seasons because, because they've got better goalkeeper, better centre-back, they're, they're sounder in, in defence. And all of that means there's less energy being put out by the team through the course of the season. So... Again, in principle, they should have more energy going into the second half of the season than Manchester City might have. So all of these little factors can help them. But I still go back to my basic point, which is Manchester City have better players. Um, and also they have the history of winning, which is always an important thing in football, is that you've actually been there, you've done it, you've won the title, you believe you're better than the opposition. 
we've talked about Liverpool improving. Duncan, do you see improvement in Man City? Yeah, I think you, you, you would say there is improvement. I think certain players have definitely improved. I mean, Bernardo Silva is arguably the best, being the best attacking midfielder in the division this season, um, certainly in the, in the top three. Um, and that, that's, that's testament to just how strong Manchester City are because they've had their best player, the best player in the Premier League last season, Kevin De Bruyne, out for um, all but the majority of it and, and basically hasn't been missed because Bernardo has done so well in his position. I think Raheem Sterling has gone up another level again. I think Aguero, you see Guardiola having a lot more faith in him um, and, and starting him whenever he's fit to start. Um, and I think their, their defence is not perfect, but it's better with, um, with John Stones and Imeric Laporte as a as consistent partners. Um, he's not shifting his central defenders around as much as he did last season. And, and Laporte, although he's, he's definite, has, has um, defensive fragility in him and, and some bad decision-making in the defensive perspective, he's, he's a better user of the ball than either Otamendi or, or company, which aids them going forward. So I think they have improved, but I don't think the, the step up from Man City is as much as, as Liverpool's. But then it's hard to see how they could make that biggest step up given the, the points tally and the, and the goals they scored last season. And I, I, what, I, what I don't see yet is that significant improvement in Europe. I still see um, a team that, that has problems against good opponents in Europe um, where the refereeing is a bit different, where the tactical fouling that they use in, in the Premier League so effectively is not as tolerated by um, officials which puts players under pressure earlier and where um, the, you know, the opposition coaches are smart and will play the way that's required to um, put Man City in trouble and have high-quality players to do it. So that step up I haven't seen, but I do think they're, they're a bit better in the Premier League. I think um, Duncan makes a very good point. Um, I, I think that the priority for either club will make a difference in terms of um, where the trophies uh, end up being. Uh, I do think that both players and the manager at Manchester City are under pressure to win the Champions League. Um, Guardiola's uh, reign there has produced one Premier League title but not a Champions League and I think it's true to say that he's under more pressure to win the Champions League than he has the Premier League. Uh, I do think also, though, that Liverpool's players are less experienced and, as I've already stated, um, there is that very, very essential part in a player's makeup, which makes them believe that they can win a major trophy, which Liverpool players don't possess as yet. However, if the pressure's taken off them in terms of Champions League, or even Europa League, then they can focus properly um, on what is a very, very difficult and arduous fixture list towards the end of the season, because this is going to go to the wire, even if Man City go, say, Champions League semi-finals or, or beyond, etc. Um, they will still be competing. And it's up to it's the Liverpool players' mindset, which will be questioned more often than not um, at difficult games when they're drawing or they're losing by a goal, etc., etc. They haven't really been in a position this season yet where they've had to, you know, really pull it out of the fire. Um, they've, they've, in the majority of games, they've cruised through them um, due to the brilliance of their front three, um, as, as well as the midfield, and of course, the great James Milner. But um, other than that, then they need to really step up to the plate and deliver the results in the Premier League. So I think a lot, will change after Christmas um, when we revisit the Champions League again in uh, the knockout stages in February. And if Liverpool are, are there and Manchester City are there, then I think we'll see a difference from last season when obviously Liverpool went on that amazing run which saw them beat City in the quarterfinals and go to the Champions League final. I don't think, I don't expect anyway to see Liverpool putting that amount of um, focus and concentration on the Champions League when there's a Premier League title to be won, that is now the golden goose for Liverpool Football Club is to win the Premier League and win that championship again after so many years of um, you know living in the shadow of the Manchester clubs and Chelsea. 
So I think that's where we're going with with regards to the title race. Okay, okay. Well, we're going to move on to Manchester United now. We've always got some good Manchester United news, and today is no different. Duncan, you have some information regarding Romelu Lukaku, who has changed his agent. Yes, um, I think this is a, a positive uh, for Jose Mourinho that um, Lukaku has now formally switched away from Mino Raiola, um, the agent of Paul Pogba, obviously, who, who brought um, Lukaku to the club. Um, Lukaku's been working with um, an artist company, Rock Nation, for a while on his personal uh, representation in terms of business profile and um, sponsorship deals, but he's now signed a, a contract with um, Federico Pastorello, who's one of the, the more prominent um, Italian agents uh, in terms of looking after his football uh, matters. Um, Pastorello, interestingly, um, was the guy who put uh, Antonio Conte's move uh, to Chelsea in place um, and has been working on, uh, on the next club for um, Conte to go to. Um, also worked with Patrice Evra, amongst um, other um, prominent footballers. And I think, uh, from what I understand, Lukaku basically got fed up of um, Raiola's, uh, uh, the way he'd handled him. Um, I'm told that uh, there was a, a, a misunderstanding over his move away from Everton in that uh, Lukaku thought that Raiola was conducting negotiations with uh, Marina Granovskaya um, to do that deal when in fact uh, the discussions were principally with Conte who obviously wanted to bring Lukaku to the club. Um, some other matters that have gone on in, in the background but from Manchester United's perspective, from Mourinho's perspective, we've talked you know, time and time again about the problems Pogba um, and Mourinho and Manchester United are having and the impact Triola has had in terms of his advice to Pogba in terms of um, his response to things going wrong for Pogba on the field, which has been to um, go around other uh, European clubs and canvas a move that offered the player for sale, essentially unsuccessfully. Um, not having an agent who operates in that fashion um, with another of your, your key players um, will allow, uh, I think, a more harmonious relationship um, in, the, in the dressing room. Um, it was some interesting comments from Lukaku at the weekend after he after he scored against Fulham. He was asked about the weight he'd put on, um, and he admitted that uh, he'd uh, gone in a bodybuilding program ahead of the World Cup and had felt very good at the World Cup, um, and it worked for him. And then he's, he's realised that coming back into the Premier League, carrying that extra weight in terms of muscle, has been of serious disadvantage to him. And that coupled with um, a hamstring injury he's had uh, for a part of the season has really seen his, his form decline. I'm told um, uh, he's been dealing with that with with Mourinho. They've had constructive talks. He's um, he's changed his diet to get the weight off, and he's um, and he's now feeling the benefit on the pitch. Um, so it's um, not a major bit of news, but uh, something that's relevant. Um, and in these days where agents are so important to the way players act within a club and to um, their uh, the handling of contract negotiations and, and attempts to use other clubs' interests in the player to, to put pressure on manager uh, and, and directors. I think it's a good thing for, um, for Manchester United that Lukaku has moved away from Raiola. Just to give us a little bit of insight onto how difficult it is for a player to break a contract with his agent, Duncan, is, is that something that that causes difficulties from a legal point of view, or is it, is it as simple as, you know, this isn't working out anymore? Is there a contract Usually, with an agent? Yeah, there's a, generally there's a contract with an agent. It depends on the player. Some players will um, just have legal representation, so that the, the lawyer will do the contract with the club, and then they'll mandate a player, uh, sorry, mandate an agent to... Um, to talk to other clubs about uh, about deals um, without actually signing a representation contract. We'll just give them a mandate for that particular transfer or that particular negotiation. Um, or you can have a, a, a proper representation contract. Um, in, the, in England, those contracts only last for two years. 
so you get a lot of turnover of um, of players to different agents when the when the, that two year contract expires, and it's you know there's a a big hidden marketplace um, basically a battle going on between the 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 most prominent agencies in England and some of the foreign agents to take players away from each other, um, and it's. You know, it, it's something that, that goes on continuously at the top clubs and, and agents will use their players in a dressing room to approach um, the client of another agent and suggest to him that their agent isn't doing a good job and he might want to, to switch over to them. And obviously agents will target the players, not only who are, who are successful, but the ones who are coming to the end, or close to the end of their contracts with the clubs and therefore have the leverage of of um, threatening a free transfer move, or our um, due uh, contract renewals with the club. So we tend to report on the club-to-club -club activity and the club-to-player activity, but there's there's an, another battleground which is which is probably a lot dirtier uh, than the club-to-club -club battleground, which is agents to agents fighting over players, which goes on continuously um, and 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 for obvious reasons because you take um, Paul Pogba, that's a you know 105 million euro initial transfer, um, a contract that makes him the highest paid player at the club. Um, uh, in Raúl's case, he managed to get an additional uh, cut of the transfer fee from Juventus in the way he took um, from as a, as a result of the way he took Pogba to Juventus in the first place, where there was an, an agreement that. Um, if he was able to sell the player above a certain sum, then a big percentage of that excess would go to him. So I don't know the exact figures, but we're talking tens of millions of euros that Raiola made out of one deal with Paul Pogba, which is why you see agents competing to, um, to control or work for the, the top talents in the game. It's significant for me, Johnny, that um, Lukaku and Raiola have split because um, Lukaku knows the influence that Raiola has had in terms of the relationship between Manchester United and Paul Pogba, as well as the relationship between Jose Mourinho and Paul Pogba, and then convert, you know, going on to the club itself as well. And I would say that um, it's unusual for a player of Lukaku's high profile to dump his agent so unceremoniously and so quickly. Usually there is a contract which lasts until a certain time, but it looks to me from the outside that Lukaku's had a clause in that contract which says he can change agent um, in a short period of time rather than in a notice period. Um, so my reading of the situation is that Paul Pog, uh, that Roman Lukaku wants to stay at Manchester United and continue his career there and wants to um, progress his career there uh, in a way which would be much more beneficial if Raiola, who has been seen as a kind of agent provocateur um, by the United Board and by Jose Mourinho, um, by, by changing agent and, and saying, look, I'm, this is a statement from me to say that my future is at this club, my career progress is at this club and I want to stay here and do that. And I think that's got to be a positive for Mourinho and for Manchester United in terms of Lukaku's ongoing commitment, etc., etc. Because uh, what we know about Raul is that he will, and we've reported this consistently, if one of his players is unhappy, the first thing he does, his first, his default um, response is to go off for that player to another club. I don't think Lukaku... Uh, wants to be at another club other than Manchester United. Therefore, this is a big plus for them. One of the big talking points, of course, at Manchester United, and something that we've discussed in great detail, is the requirement for a defender. Certainly, that's what Jose Mourinho wants. And uh, I believe that there is a number of rumblings going on that perhaps they have found their man, or certainly someone that could come in in January. Ian, what have you heard? On this one, Johnny, it's, it's not a, um, a particularly new story we reported on it in the summer transfer window but that um like toby alderweireld at, at tottenham is not Jose Mourinho's first choice as duncan has um, correctly reported um that jerino has got other uh, options who he would rather sign however um 
Mourinho's not, unfortunately for him, in the position where he can absolutely insist upon his first choice uh, of transfer being the uh, the one that they go for. And with Alderweireld, uh, he's six months out of contract in January. Uh, Spurs don't want to sell and will certainly um, make a point of trying to um, retain him because of their own aspirations regarding top four, short Champions League, etc., etc. But um, Daniel Levy is not someone who's um, you know uh, naive enough to know that a forty-plus million offer for a player who effectively can leave for free in the summer should be uh, sniffed at. So, with regards to Mourinho, he sees Alderweireld as someone who hits the ground running. He's twenty-nine. He's obviously very experienced in the Premier League, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think what's very interesting is that. Um, uh, he defended and indeed expanded quite um, crucially upon the future of Fred, the Brazilian midfielder that was signed for £52 million uh, last summer, um, being dependent on uh, a, reorgan- <coughs> a reorganisation of Manchester United's defence and the fact that um, the central midfield positions would not necessarily have to protect the defence as much had they have a very commanding and um, experienced midfielder taking charge or, sorry, defender, taking charge of the, the back four. So uh, in terms of that, I think it's priority for Manchester United, it's a priority for Mourinho to sign a, an experienced defender in the January window. And uh, the fact that the um, United board and Edward in particular have now assigned the money for that to happen is a significant um, step forward for Mourinho in terms of the way that things have gone for him with regards to the discussions uh, regarding recruitment in the last six months or so. Duncan, you've been a big proponent of the idea that Jose Mourinho's first choice for this position is Calidou Koulibaly of Napoli. Would Toby Alderweireld be an adequate replacement? Look, he's not top of the list for a reason. Um, and they had the opportunity to sign him in the summer. Um, but that was, I'm told, driven by Tottenham wanting to sell the player. And I think if you, you see the way Alderweireld has been used by Pochettino um, this season, um, being left out of key games when he is available, it shows why Tottenham were prepared to sell him. But basically, Tottenham thought they could, they could cash in on, on Mourinho's desire to improve at centre-back and and obviously having an experienced, um, high-performing centre-back who wanted to leave and who the, their manager wasn't particularly enamoured with um, was an option for them, but they asked for too much money. And, and their valuation, which I'm told was £75 million, um, was way above what uh, the, the figure that, that Mourinho was prepared to, to bite on. Um, Koulibaly is the guy, if you gave him a blank sheet, um, of realistically available centre-backs. He's the one he is advising the club to sign. There has been progress in that, which um, which tells you that Manchester United's board are at least um, prepared to show willing when it comes to um, doing something in January in the market and that they've had a meeting with, um, with Napoli uh, to inquire about Koulibaly and uh, got the response that he would cost over 100 million euros. They didn't want to sell the player and cost over 100 million euros. I think there's a question mark over, um, certainly over whether Ed Woodward would sanction a fee of that amount or even a fee approaching that amount, unless his immense um, gargantuan team of scouts uh, were saying that that player was the right player in their mind uh, to strengthen the position as well as in Mourinho's mind. Um, what I can say is I think it's a very odd strategy to go to Napoli while they were still in the Champions League um, to ask the price of a player in the January market. If you you know, if you set yourself up and you actually want to sign Kaladu Koulibaly, you want to strike at a moment of weakness. So the, 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 the more intelligent strategy would have been to wait see if Napoli were knocked out of the Champions League and see if you could tempt um, their owner uh, with a sale at that point, knowing that the player is open to the move 
uh, knowing that although he renewed his, his contract at Napoli in September, that his, his wage level isn't so high that um, you can't improve it at, uh, at a, a reasonable cost to the club. Um, you know, the background to this is that uh, De Laurentiis, the president and owner of Napoli, hired um, Carlo Ancelotti as manager in the summer. Um, quite a surprise uh, move and, and, and something of a coup for him to get a, a manager of his quality in. They didn't really spend in the summer market, but a deal was made with Ancelotti that none of his players, his key players, would be allowed to leave unless Ancelotti approved the sale. Um, and Napoli are not a club um, with financial problems, um, so there's no pressure on them uh, to sell in the, in the sense that they have to get money in um, to keep the, the books in good order at the end of the season. So there are some question marks over the way the board has approached this and whether they're actually serious about doing Koulibaly or not. Um, as as we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that one of the alternative options that Mourinho has proposed um, is Eder Militão at FC Porto, um, who is a young Brazilian centre-back, uh, more of the profile that, that Woodward likes to sign, i.e. Um, players who are developing the game and young and he sees um, that their, their value on the transfer books will remain high for many years at the club. Um, interesting parallel with Kyogo Dalot, who they, they got for 22 million euros in the summer and who um, now he's got over um, his initial injury problems. He was signed with an injury post-operation and, uh, and got injured on international duty with Portugal on the 21s. Is showing uh, his ability as an attacking fullback. It was uh, really exceptional quality of ball he was delivering against Fulham um, at the weekend. But I think you can also see he's quite raw from a defensive point of view. So his positioning against Arsenal, he was often getting caught out of position and, and having to rescue himself with his pace, which he was able to do. But Militown is going to be, um, has a release clause of 50 million euros at Porto, um, which is probably negotiable down depending on interest from other clubs. Um, Chelsea, I'm, I'm told, are also uh, keen on him. Um, but really, I think everything in the transfer market for Manchester United uh, remains up in the air. Um, and, you know, as I keep saying, everything about Jose Mourinho um, and his position at Manchester United is essentially judged week to week, game to game, uh, performance on the field result, uh, response of the media, response of the fans, response of some of the players at the club. Um, and you could you can envisage a bad result at Anfield, uh, turning all the focus on him again and demands that he be dismissed, or a, a good result at Anfield, um, hushing it all down for a while and uh, and allowing a more leverage when it comes to pushing Woodward to to provide what the team actually needs in the January market. Just very quickly, Johnny, maybe the most important factor that in what we've been discussed just now is the fact that. United have conceded to you, um, Mourinho, that he can actually purchase at a decent level in January. It says um, something about you know where the team are right now in terms of the Premier League, their potential to challenge in the Champions League knockout stages uh, come February. I don't believe this is a vote of confidence in Mourinho. I think Duncan's right that his position is under review week on week. But I think... Uh, the significance of it is that they see it as being a necessary um, band-aid, if you like, to try and improve performances short-term uh, going ahead into the final six months of the season. Look, they, they made the mistake in the summer of thinking they knew better about the transfer market than, than the manager. And, and what's been happening this season is not solely because of that, but a lot of it is down to uh, that failure to invest in positions that clearly needed reinforcing uh, in the summer. So you can understand why they wouldn't want to make that mistake again. And if the, if the, if the option to them is to sack Mourinho um, in the hope that bringing someone else in, get them Champions League qualification, because they're not going to be able to get their, um, their desired target of, of, of manager uh, worthy to change at this point, then that's an extremely high risk. Um, strategy for them to take and and we do know that uh, essentially the, the the board is risk averse 
Okay, well, we're going to move on to a different subject. We started the podcast off by looking at the football talking points from Chelsea against Manchester City on Saturday, but there were also some other more disturbing talking points with regards to the racial abuse that seemed to be appeared to be suffered by Raheem Sterling on videos that were doing the rounds on social media. And actually, you could see it from the Match of the Day cameras as well on the BBC. This is a very, very serious issue, and Raheem Sterling commented on it in, on his Instagram account um, where he started to give his own perspective on events and took uh, a couple of the newspapers to task with regards uh, their treatment of him over the last few years. Ian, as a former Daily Mail and Sun journalist yourself, do you think Raheem Sterling has a point? I think it was very brave of him, Johnny, to... Um effectively call out the two largest um, print media organisations in this country for the way that they treat, not him, and this is very important, he said he said black players compared to young white players. I think Sterling himself has in some ways gotten over um, the way that he's been treated, which has been poor, no doubt about it, um, in the last two to three years. Having worked for both those newspapers, I certainly saw aspects um, on the inside where um, there was there was almost an engendered culture whereby it was um, permissible to write things in a certain way. On the Daily Mail, in, uh, particularly, um, Paul Dacre, who's now the former editor, was someone who disliked football and footballers, uh, and I had many um, engagements with players who, black and white, um, who felt that they were treated poorly by the male and by them as well as their families. Uh, and David Beckham was a case in point where the male uh, in particular ridiculed uh, him for his uh, quite high voice, for his uh, working class background, for his choice of wife, and his choice of lifestyle, etc., etc. Now, I'm not um, in any way comparing that to the more serious aspect of being, you know, racist towards a young black player. But it certainly was the case. It was a culture at the Daily Mail where um, the news journalists were allowed to go for, and by that I mean, you know, like wolves, go for um, football players for their choices in lifestyle or their choices in just day-to-day, to to be quite honest. And I found it um, very uncomfortable and despicable. Uh, It wasn't for me right then in the sports department. Uh, I think it has seeped into the sports department since I'd left in 2006. And that's been one of the things that Ryan Sterling has, I think, um, pointed to with regards to discrimination of how he has been treated with regards to, for instance, buying his mum a house and how other football players who are not black have been um, recognised as buying the players, uh, buying the mum a house in that, in that sense. And therefore, the importance of what Sterling has done is um, not just with regards to um, recognise and to highlight the fact that racism is still a big issue in football in 2018, it's also, as he said himself, it's fueled by the attitudes of certain news organisations as well. And that's something which has to be addressed and I don't think is currently being addressed. And I, I do very much feel um, that Sterling has, has done both himself and um, all black players a, a really um, big service by calling out such powerful organisations as the Daily Mail and the Sun in terms of the way that they're treated. Um, and also, I would like to see a response, if you like, both immediate and um, circumstantial from those organisations in terms of rectifying that, because until we start to educate people, and by this I mean not just young people, but also um, the middle-aged or even later than that, people who we saw screaming abuse at Sterling at Stamford Bridge last weekend, then there's no chance that racism will be properly addressed in football in this country, nor indeed 
in society because why should it be acceptable or not or or why should it be you know endorsed or or not um in, in any way uh, treated as a form of a crime if it's done in a football stadium when it is in the high street it just seems very odd and therefore we need to i think uh, recalibrate the way in which we see things um, in football stadia as well to the way that we see them in the street. Because th if the police were called in a similar circumstance um, for a crime like that on the London Tube or the Manchester Railways, then there would be um, punishment to be uh, doled out. But yet in football grounds, it's like just a life ban or whatever, indefinite ban, but no actual fine or sentence to community service or anything else. I think we really need to, uh, you know, recalibrate how we both view and punish these kind of incidents in our football stadia because they are not acceptable and they never will be. I think, I think there's a, no a number of things here. I think that the depiction um, that you see uh, particularly at the front end of the book, as we call it, um, so the, the the news sections of the newspapers, of of uh, Raheem Sterling as in some way unprofessional is absurd. Um, I think he is very close to being the best um, English footballer uh, there is at present. I think it's between him and Harry Kane in terms of their contribution on the pitch, their importance to the team, and more importantly, the way they've developed through their career. Sterling is a far more rounded, um, tactically intelligent footballer, a far more capable finisher, um, far more capable in all areas. You've seen Pep Guardiola this season using him um, as, a, as a right midfielder in Kevin De Bruyne's position on both wings, um, as a number nine. Um, he, his trust in him is immense, and his ability to work on his game. That doesn't happen by chance. He's been working on his game. He's improving his, his technical skills and he's improving his tactical skills. He's extremely focused, extremely competitive, extremely ambitious. I mean, in many ways, he's the model of what you'd want from um, a, a young footballer who only turned 24 in the day he received this um, racial abuse at Chelsea. And the, you know, interested to see how far he can go with that attitude and, and, and the skills he possesses because he's young he's got a lot ahead of him um i think that as a, you know i think he he was extremely brave in to to put his head above the parapet in the way in this fashion um and, and put himself open to more abuse for for speaking out and i think he was in, very intelligent in the way he phrased it I think the, the way he, um, he framed his argument, uh, comparing, showing pictures of two articles from the same newspaper and uh, the derogatory, um, negative fashion in which they talked about uh, a Manchester City youth player Tosin Adrabayo buying a house uh, for himself and his mother and comparing it to um, Phil Foden, who is, the, as we know, the, the, the young um, hope um, of English football, the idea he'll be the, the, the creative uh, fulcrum of the, of the coming English team and how, how his purchase of a house for his family and his mother was, was treated positively it was, a, was a beautiful way of putting the argument. And, I, and I'm glad to see that that's been taken well by the media um, and that essentially no one that I've seen has, um, has questioned that uh, Raheem Sterling is making a legitimate point. It's clear he's making a legitimate point. Um, I think there are a couple of elements here. One is the, the shift, as, as Ian's pointed out, of, of uh, media attention on footballers from the back pages to the front pages, which is a phenomenon of the last 10, 15 years. The front pages of the paper don't care about footballers. They're, they're basically treated as celebrities, as targets uh, to drive internet traffic, uh, which has become uh, the fundamental uh, goal of a lot of news organizations is to get as much internet traffic as possible. So if people are click on stories about footballers because of their fame, that sells for newspapers. The guys at the front end of the paper do not have relationships with the players. They don't have relationships with the clubs. They see them as easy fodder um, who they can write whatever they like about um, as long as it sells. And, and some of the people who are writing these stories are never 
out in the field. They're never speaking. Um, they're never at games. They're never speaking to players. They're never working with the teams. They don't know who the individuals really are. It's just photographs they're picking up or, or taking stuff off social media and turning them into the most controversial piece possible with the aim of getting the most hits and clicks through on, on their newspaper site. Um, and that, that, you know, it's a very destructive force because that's, for me, that is incredible journalism. It's, um, I'm not interested in that kind of journalism. And, it, and I think it's a very dangerous way of treating any individual. I think the other factor here, and I think there are some statistics from Kick It Out, the anti-racism organization, which very much support this, is Kick It Out showing that, that racist incidents of football matches have increased in the last few years. And I think it's clear the link between this increase in, in racist abuse at football matches, increase in racist abuse in everyday life, and uh, the Brexit situation we're in at the moment. The referendum uh, around leaving the EU allowed major politicians um, of prominent parties to start using xenophobic arguments um, as what were seen as legitimate um, to political tools to achieve their aim of getting people, the population of Britain to vote to leave the EU. I've never seen that in my entire life before in British politics. I've never seen senior politicians in the Labour, um, Liberal, particularly the Tory party, use xenophobia as an active campaigning tool. Once that happens, once that becomes acceptable discourse, I think you give a green light to people who are xenophobic and are racist to start expressing their um, discriminatory opinions, to start attacking people who they see as being foreign and threats to them. And there's no doubt it's, it's been dangerous in the whole of British society. And I think what we're seeing in football is just a reflection of that. It's, a, it's an element where people think they can get away with it because they see uh, on the news, senior people in positions of power in the country talking about immigration and, and talking about immigration being the most, the biggest threat um, to UK society, wealth and its economy. Um, and I don't know where we go to solve that bigger problem, um, but certainly um, there is a need within football to take whatever action is possible against supporters who engage in the kind of behaviour that um, those supporters were seen to be engaging towards um, at rate, uh, to Ryan Sterling in a football match. And, and let's face it, we have the technology um, to do that. We know who, who possesses the tickets. We know um, we have images of them engaging in the acts. There, there will be people nearby them who have heard what they're saying. So even if it's, there isn't enough proof, um, to take a legal case through the courts, the football clubs are perfectly within the rights to say, if you engage in that kind of activity in our football grounds, you will not be allowed back into our football grounds again. And um, I hope that Chelsea, who, who, to be fair to Chelsea Football Club, have been very active um, for years against racism, racism and anti-Semitism amongst their fans and do take um, a hard line against it, will take a hard line against this and, and continue going forward to take a hard line against similar such behaviour. Yeah, I think it's uh, important to point out this isn't just an English football issue. It's also been happening up here in Scotland over the last uh, couple of days where at a Motherwell Hearts game, a couple of Hearts fans were ejected and barred for the club from the club uh, for making racial comments towards a Motherwell player. So it does seem to be that it is a, a British societal issue and uh, it does play into exactly what Duncan was saying there. I think one of the leading pundits up here is a guy, Michael Stewart, formerly of Manchester United, who made a very eloquent speech regarding the issues at hearts and larger issues in society. So it is definitely something that is coming to bear and something that we all have to deal with uh, going forward. Moving on to a slightly more um, easy-going topic, uh, with the quick-fire round, we're going to make a Liverpool and Manchester United combined 11. The game is obviously being played on Sunday at 4pm. Massive game there for both clubs. And uh, we're going to start with Ian to give us the goalkeeper for our Liverpool-Manchester United 11. 
Bizarrely, um, this may uh, this would have been the easiest choice last season, obviously, Johnny. But um, Liverpool's recruitment of Alison Becker um, for a club record fee uh, for goalkeeper was um, seminal in their rise to the top of the Premier League, and so therefore. De Gea versus Alisson is uh, an actually uh, is a contest which uh, is Fury versus Welder-esque, um, I would say. But probably contrary to many people's kind of um, instinct, I'm going to go for David De Gea in terms of experience. Uh, he knows where it is to make big saves in big games. I think Alisson has been very impressive since he came in, but is prone to a little bit of errors and a little bit of overconfidence, whereas De Gea himself has shown again this season his brilliance. So, um, for me, De Gea and goal. Okay, Duncan, left back. Just say, I, I th- I'd actually have Alisson in at present on current form. Um, I don't think, I think De Gea's had a difficult season uh, with pressure from the Spanish team from Iker Casillas and uh, obviously with his contract situation, I think Alisson's outperforming him at present. In terms of left back, um, I think it's, it's clear and easy choice, Andy Robertson. Um, is way above um, any of the competitors at, at Liverpool or at Manchester United at present. Just as well, I wouldn't disagree with that one, Johnny. Yep, we, definitely. We'll be here all day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we always know that Duncan's going to make up his own version of the quickfire round, which has bad <laughs> it, so. uh, Right back, Ian? Uh, I think Trent Alexander-Arnold deserves that. Um, I know that I put uh, Ashley Young in there um, recently for the Manchester Derby and I think he, he scored a wonderful goal obviously last week against Fulham but for me Alexander-Arnold is one of the brightest and certainly most exciting prospects in the Premier League and uh, I love watching him play both through his defensive qualities and going forward so I would, I would have him at right back. Duncan, I think this may be the easiest choice to make in the whole team. Centre-back? Marcus Rojo. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. He's back and fit again. Surely he goes in. Um, yeah, obviously, Virgil van Dijk. Uh, if you compare, well, we're talking about fit centre-backs because uh, Joe Gomez is out at the moment, but if you compare, the, compare van Dijk to any of the Manchester United centre-backs, you know who you're going to have to choose in that position. Ian? And for that reason, um, Matip has to go be- beside van Dijk because of the pairing. Um, As we all know, we've discussed already uh, today that um, United have problems centre-back. So even though Smalling has improved in recent weeks, I would still go for Matip ahead of uh, any of them and and, and pair up him with uh, with VVD. Is Lovren out, is he? Lovren is maybe out. He's got an injury at the moment. Injury, yeah. Yeah, Right, well, we're going to play a 4-3-3 and we want a defensive pivot in there, so... Who's it going to be? I'll go for something that will will cause controversy, um, and I'll pick Nemanja Matic, um, a man who has been the target of a huge amount of criticism from Manchester United fans of late. Not all of them, but a considerable chunk of them. Um, and I th- I'll explain why. I think uh, I think Matic is the best technically um, of and tactically of all the the defensive midfielders between the two teams. And I think you've seen. Since Pogba has been dropped out of the team, uh, the improvement in Matic's performances for Manchester United. And I think that's a direct result that when Matic has to play with Paul Pogba in the side, doesn't know what Pogba is going to do. Um, he doesn't know when he's going to make try and flick the ball over an opponent and give the, the ball away in a bad position. He doesn't know whether he's going to come back and um, take up uh, his proper position in the midfield line. And he therefore has to compensate for him, which puts a huge amount of pressure on the player in that role. And there, um, an article I did on, on Pogba for the record at the weekend, I was looking at statistics um, for last season. And although Manchester United um, had the least distance covered of any of the Premier League teams in January, um, despite being second top of the league, Nemanja Matic at the end of the season had covered more distance than all but four other players in the Premier League. Which, so if, if you're in a, a team that conserves energy and doesn't run a lot and you run more than just about every other player in the Premier League, I think there is a clear reason why you're having to run more. And I think that reason is Paul Pogba. OK, Ian, are we central midfielder with a bit of attack in nous, please? Um, <clears throat> I've been very impressed by Naby Keita's um, introduction to the team for Liverpool in the last few weeks. I think he 
has got a grasp now on what it takes to play in England and in the Premier League, where he was obviously struggling to do so beforehand, Johnny. Um, obviously, um, regular listeners of this uh, podcast will know my love for James Milner, and it pains me greatly to not put him in place there um, instead of Keita. But I think Keita would be the man who would have to take preference and priority in that position. Duncan? A game like this, um, where you want someone who gives everything for the team and follows tactical instruction to the letter, I think you could make a case for Ander Herrera on current form to be in that position. And I think if you look at the way Mourinho has used Herrera um, in the last couple of seasons, he frequently brings him in for these kind of games for exactly those reasons. So I give him the edge at present, the way he's playing, over the other options. Remarkably, Duncan, I agree on that one, Johnny. Okay, uh, that's uh, <laughs> interesting. Matic, Keita and Herrera in midfield. Left midfield or left wing now, Ian? Right, I'm going to be extremely controversial here. Mm-hmm. and go for Paul Pogba. <laughs> Dropped for the last two games <clears throat> and uh, clearly, you know, someone who's uh, feeling a little bit lacking in love from his club and from his manager, but he's a big game player, as we've seen co- consistently in his career. Um, and if you send him out against Liverpool, having been chastised by um, being dropped to the bench for the last two Premier League games, I think Pogba is will is able, obviously, but I think also um, will be motivated to give a very, very big game display. And therefore, if I was Jose, um, I would put Pogba on the left side. He's trying. He's trying to. He's trying to outdo his decision to substitute Diego Maradona with that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, that, I'm, I'm slightly awestruck by that decision um, but as I say um, Zlatan Ibrahimovic is a midfielder according to Mr McGarry so nothing new there um, right winger then Duncan how are you going to balance this midfield <laughs> um, I think it's impossible to balance it now. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just go for the best player in the position so, and, and that would be Mo Salah who is, uh, who is now getting back to uh, the form he showed uh, last season uh, and on a run of confidence, um, is a irresistible force in those positions. So, um, and you know, Manchester United don't have any right wingers, so it's not a lot of competition for them either. Okay, and we round us off here with a striker. I'm expecting you go for Eric Bailly up there. Well, <laughs> I, I, I might have done, um, but I will definitely go for Roberto Firmino. I think technically he's um, the best of what they uh, the have in two teams. He's intelligent. He uh, he can play in behind you or run forward and play the second phase and the second ball. Um, he's always there in making the runs to make uh, a goal opportunity as well. So, um, despite Lukaku's recent kind of um, renaissance in terms of his own goal scoring options and and uh, attempts, I think Firmino's the man. Okay, well that gives us a team of uh, David De Gea and goal because I've overruled you there, Duncan, about Alisson. Um, Robertson at left back, right back Alexander-Arnold, Virgil van Dijk and Matic, uh, Matip at the back with Matic in front covering the defensive duties of the midfield. Kaitan Herrera in front of him and Pogba on the left wing with Salah on the right wing and Firmino up top. It's a pretty good side to be fair. That sounds good to me to be fair, yeah. I'd like to watch that team. That's just going to be a lot of goals, anyway. <laughs> Duncan sounds unconvinced. Um, just before we go, guys, can we get a little prediction out of you for the game? Um, Duncan, if we start with yourself. Uh, I would expect a draw. Um, I think Mourinho has a very good record at Anfield. Um, generally, comes up with a system that Klopp doesn't like to play against. So um, I think he can come away with this, with at least a point from this game uh, and frustrate Liverpool. And yourself, Ian? Uh, I will play Red Devils Advocate <laughs> excuse me, say that again. Red Devils Advocate and say 2-1 Liverpool. Yep, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to agree with you there, Ian. I think it's going to be at least 2-1, if not 3-1 Liverpool. So, we may be talking about Josie Mourinho next week. For a chance. That'll be that's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, with that, I'm going to slam this particular transfer window shut. Just a reminder that we are looking for a sponsor. So if you like the idea of partnering with one of the best football podcasts in the UK and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window account at Transfer Podcast. We're trying to build a community on that account, so everyone who follows will get a follow back. So come and join us. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane if you want to speak to us individually. And most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, please give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five star review, as this helps us get as many listeners as possible. The bigger the community, the more we can give you. It's that simple. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. Until next time, thanks for listening.